Welcome to this week's teaching from Exchange Church in the heart of Belfast. I also want to say one thing. Uh, we're going to pray before I open the word this morning for the situation in the Middle East. Um, I obviously was away um, for, for most of the week, but I, I, was, I was glued in the evenings just watching what's going on. And, you know, I, we're called as believers to pray for peace. Okay, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are those who make peace. And, and we're called to be peacemakers. And I want to pray that this morning. But, and unequivocally, I want to say this, that we stand with the nation of Israel against the barbaric terrorist attacks that were instigated against the country last week, because that's what they were. And um, it's interesting for me, I, I, was, I was really surprised yesterday when I saw, even in the UK, that it seems to be okay, you know, um, I'll just go for it. Do you know what? It's, like, it's not okay to celebrate the death of Jews anywhere. It's not okay. And uh, we're called to pray for peace, to pray for everyone who's caught up in conflict, and that's what we pray for. But we stand with Israel, and we stand with the people there. And when people sing from the, you know, about wiping them out from the, from the mountains to the sea and all the rest of it, that's not okay, all right? It's not okay. And um, we can't forget that today, as we sit here celebrating, that Jesus, you know, we, we're connected with churches in Israel where both Arabs and Christians and Jews and everyone in between come together under the name of Jesus, right? And we know those churches, we've supported them financially, we stand with them, they're part of our wider network in grace and uh, we wanna pray for them this morning. I've had notifications of people that we know have been called up into the IDF because they've mobilized, you know, and these are people like you and me in church, people who lead churches in Tel Aviv, but are now, you know, standing, you know, literally, I know I, I joke about having been to Israel, but if you've never been, you need to go because it's, it's one of the most incredible countries but it's also that they're a country that literally fights for its life. They fight for their lives. And we saw that last week. And so can we pray for them, right? And we pray for peace on, on all sides. But I just, I, I, I think the narrative, I've just been really unha deeply, deeply unhappy with the narrative around one side and this kind of moral equivalence. It's not there. So we, we stand today, Father, in Jesus' name, and we pray peace in this situation. Father, we thank you that you are the God above it all. And so, Father, we pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move in this whole situation, Father, and that peace would be brought about. Speak to the hearts of men, Lord, even men today who are planning evil and planning for destruction. Father, we pray for a mighty move of your Holy Spirit in them, Lord, that they would, Lord, I just pray for those people who are not believers today, that they would have visions of Jesus, that they would see him, that they, Lord, that you would speak to them, Father, that their hearts would be arrested and changed this morning. Father, we pray your hand of protection over the nation of Israel. Father, we thank you Lord, that uh, you always call this nation, Father, to be an example to the world, Lord. You, for this purpose, you said all the way back in Exodus, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my glory and so the nations may see me through you. And Father, we believe that prophecy even today and we speak it over them, Lord. We pray for those who grieve today on both sides, Lord. We pray for those who grieve. We pray, Father, for those who have lost loved ones, for those who have been through the most incredible trauma, horrific trauma. And Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to bring comfort and to bring hope. But Lord, change this situation around. We pray for de-escalation, for calm minds, Lord, for wisdom 
in, in, in the decision makers, Father. And, but we pray for peace. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so, well, because St. Penny did such a great job last week, okay, it has fallen on me, all right, to, uh, to, to follow up. So get your Bible, sorry, I'm going to be reading today from the book of Ezra. And I, I want to talk to you about what happens when opposition comes. Because if you are, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, if you're in ministry for the Lord, then you know what it's like to have things come against you. And so I've got a word for you this morning, uh, which hopefully is really going to help. It's going to build on what Penny said last week. And there's two, there's two tracks to this. Uh, obviously, as a church, we're in a period of time where um, we're soon going to be homeless. <laughs> Amazing, right? And uh, don't worry about that. The Lord's got it all in hand. And... Uh, so we're going to be homeless very soon because the Lord's moving us on to somewhere else. I don't know where he's moving us to, but he knows, so that's all going to be fine. But also what God is starting in your own life. And Penny said last week, you know, that, that whole thing of don't despise small beginnings. Don't, don't be afraid of small beginnings because when the Lord starts something, like the Lord's not an Instagram influencer. Do you get that? You know, this kind of, I, I, follow me, here's $5. You can have a private jet next week using my system. You know that stuff and you want to run into them there, all right? That's just nonsense, selling people lies. The Lord normally will lead you bit by bit into something because it's not so much about what you want to achieve. It's about what he's doing in you and the purpose for which he's called you, right? So we're called to love the Lord. We're called to be, you know, to enjoy him fully, to experience him here, and then to take that message of God's love and to share it and to give it to people who don't know him. That's what it is. And you're called for influence. We've talked about this so many times. But, and you're called to see the goodness and the greatness of God in your life. And he normally starts and grows you into it, right? Because you'd be overwhelmed by the love of God if it was shown in all of its fullness in one moment. Do you get that? And so when God starts something in your life, when the word of grace comes, you're going to grow. And sometimes we get frustrated because we look at other people and we go, well, why am I not like them? Why, why, why have they got more than me? And God's going, look, just chill. Don't look left or right. Look at what I'm doing in you and I'm going to lead you and grow you. Amen? That's kind of what Penny was saying last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to look, I'm going to just look at Ezra chapter three and I'm going to go quite teachy today. Is that all right? We're going to open the word and we're going to teach because there's some really great stuff in it. So let, let's take it in Ezra chapter, chapter three, verses two and three. This is Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Unlike Penny, I can say that. Okay? I was only going to phone her and go, it's not that hard. Say after me, Zerubbabel, not Zerubbabel, all right? And because uh, these are the two main leaders in this rebuilding project. Remember, the people of God are coming back after, after exile. They're going to rebuild the temple. Uh, if, you, if you haven't read my book, go get a copy, all right? You'll get it today. I talk about why the temple mattered. This is a quick recap because the temple, originally the tabernacle in the Old Testament, literally means the place where heaven meets earth. And so it was the place before Jesus comes and rips apart everything that stands against us standing in the very presence of God. There was a place on the earth where heaven touched earth. It was called the tabernacle. And so they built a temple, it gets torn down. And here we have the building of the second temple. All right. So then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brethren, the priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, just kidding, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel. I want to go over this point again, to offer burnt offerings on it. As it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. This is really important. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. 
So it says here, they arose and built the altar of the God of Israel. They arose and built the altar of the God of Israel. I want to think, you to think about this for your own life this morning. Because if you want to see the fullness of God and walk in an experience of the goodness of God, you need to build an altar at the center of your life. You need to have an altar at the center of your life. And the question is not, do I have an altar? It's what is the altar? Because before they start, long before they could do anything of significance, long before they could literally be in that place of experiencing heaven touching earth, they wisely started with building an altar. And, and this altar was for the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Now, before you start to go, oh, hold on a second. Are you telling me that in my life I need to have a place where I work continually and I work hard and I'm always doing? No, that's not the point. This is shadow. They, they built an altar because they understood its spiritual significance. What was the altar for? What, before they tried anything for God or did anything to God or whatever, or had an experience or wanted to have an experience of God, they fundamentally understood that there had to be a place where sin was dealt with, where the common man met with God because the temple was only for the priests to enter. They couldn't go in there. And so they started with an altar. The first thing they do in the middle of desolation is they create a place, right? But shows a really wise spiritual priority. They understood their need to have atonement from sin and a place that would mean, a place where they could simply point to and understand that from this place, everything is gonna come from here. The first priority in your life, and it's a picture of Jesus, you know, every offering that was offered in the temple, every offering they had to do uh, according to the law of Moses, Jesus was the fulfillment of it all. And what, what Ezra chapter three tells us is this. It's like, if you're gonna build anything in your own life or us as a church, it will have to have the work of Jesus first and foremost at the very center. There is no other foundation to build on. We don't make... Under the law, you see, what they did is they said, it's our, it's our work, our sacrifice, we're sacrificing and God will do. But what, what happens here is that, that, you know, a guy called Mayer said this, this is the first thing that must be done before our temple building or other undertakings can be crowned with success. The new start that God himself was giving would have been invalidated without the altar, which meant forgiveness for the past and renewed consecration for the future. It would have the new start that God was giving would have been invalidated without the altar, which meant forgiveness for the past and renewed consecration for the future. I, I want to I encourage you this morning that this seems like a very simple place to start. But if God is going to build anything with Exchange Church, if God is going to build anything in your life, it will not be from a place of your work, your effort, and your sacrifice. That's not the foundation they were really wise and they said, we need a place of atonement. We need a place that we point to and we look to. A place in our lives where, because remember, it was absolutely desolate all around. And if your life is desolate at the minute, if there's things in your life where you look around and you go, that's a mess, that's been knocked down, that's not working, what does the Lord say to you? Don't start to rebuild in each one of those areas before you have first consecrated and put Jesus at the center of it all. Because it's only from that place can you build anything of any worth, value, or success. Because it's not you building anyway, it's him in you building. That's the work of grace. Do you get that? 
And so what happens is that's where they start. And what was interesting, they would have had to pull down an old altar to do it. That they, you know, that they probably had, you know, when, when they built the altar to the Lord on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there was a crude altar, like a kind of halfway house one that had been built on that spot. And because you know, there was a scattered remnant, you know, they, they, they weren't all exiled. There's some of them left. I'm going to talk about that in a minute because it's important. And what happens is they inhabit the two generations of exile. And what the, the, this old, old altar would have been there. It would have been kind of crudely built. And what happens is, you know, it's a mixture, I guess, right? They were, because it wasn't solid, because it wasn't, uh, you know, they were, they were conscious of the fact that for two generations, they had done half a job of having the altar at the center. And the picture is this, let's take that away. If we're gonna start and build, if we're gonna have something of significance in our lives, it can't be crude and half built. You can't have half of Jesus in your life, is the point. You can't have an, an altar, which is the, the work of Jesus in your life where it's sort of halfway there. It's crude. It's half built. It's not really of any significance to you. It needs to be, this is why it says they put it back on its bases. This is really interesting. That when they put it back on its right place, this is an echo into, into the book of Hebrews, where, where, where the writer says, you know, like the cross of Christ set on its foundation. All right? And so what happens is on its bases, when it says there, they put the altar on its bases, it was like putting the altar back in its rightful place where it had stood for all time. And so I wanna encourage you today. It's not, it's not a word which, uh, the, the word of grace to you today is this, is that the, the only way to see success, the only way to see the fullness and the love of God really flow in your life is to have a place where your eyes and your attention are built around the work of Jesus his finished work for you. Not something that's crudely built in half and half, like half a job, you know what I mean? Like something that I would do if I was putting up a shelf. It's a wee bit wonky. You know, I was thinking about this, remember, when Penny, when we were first married. I, uh, do you know what I meant? Don't, we don't really need instructions for DIY, do we? Like, let's be honest. Those are more kind of handy hints and you don't really need to follow them. If you're a real man this morning, you can just take a whack at it. That's what I told myself for many years, right? And so what happened was uh, Penny's granny came to stay and she, we needed a new bed because we were just married and we didn't have. And so I, I, Ikea job, you know what I mean? Laid it all out. So it couldn't be that hard. <laughs> Screwed it all together. Plane was landing. Granny was coming. Bit of a nightmare. And, um, but I got in, <laughs> you know, put it up. And then, oh, no nightmare. It was like that there. And I said to Penny, can you not stick a few pillows under her feet? That'll keep her kind of balanced out a wee bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> He's like, you can't do that. I said, we're not unscrewing it. Right? So you're going to have to unscrew it. So I had to unscrew the whole thing to try to get it level. And then Penny actually said to me, did you read the instructions? I went, don't be so stupid. <laughs> read the instructions. <laughs> Fortune, read the instructions. Granny's coming. And so we bit like that. We have a wonky Ikea bed at the middle of our lives where it kind of looks kind of all right, but it's not really on the level. And just, I'm just recovering this point because this thing of putting the altar back on its bases is about have nothing in your life at the center other than Jesus and his finished work of grace for you. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Because what's gonna happen here in Ezra chapter four is when opposition comes, if you don't have the altar on its bases, then you're, you're absolutely stuffed. Okay, so they were wise that way. And I think we need to hear from, from this 
from this story this morning to go, like God will start in small beginnings, but we will go round and round and round and round in our lives. We will be endlessly disappointed and frustrated when the altar, uh, the finished work of Jesus is not on its right base in our lives. Jesus alone, first and foremost, who he is, what he has done, his promise over your life. You cannot build anything unless that is where you start. Really simple point, okay? Is that okay? Okay, so turn up Ezra chapter four. Because, and what, what was really interesting about this, right, is that let me just finish on one point. There was a, and you read in the end of Ezra chapter three, there's a mixed reaction from the older people. And I thought about this this week when I was reading it. And like the old men who'd first seen the temple, it tells you in, in Ezra three, they wept aloud when they started to see that the foundation of the temple being laid before their eyes. Because it says some of them wept aloud and some of them cried for joy. Now, this is really interesting for me. And I asked the Lord about it. I said, what was that about? Well, the older men you see knew that the temple would never match the glory of the first. Do you know that Solomon spent about between five and eight billion dollars in today's money building the temple? And so there was, this, there was this kind of looking back with disappointment, right? And going, whatever God's gonna do in my life, it's not gonna be like it was before. And sometimes I, I, I absolutely believe that God wants to revive the hearts of every man and woman in this city and in, in this nation. That's why it's great to have Mitch here today. The guy is absolutely sold out to see lives transformed by the grace of God throughout the island from top to bottom, aren't you? It's what you live for. I, I love that. I love that passion for the lost. I absolutely love it. But you know, and I know hopefully Mitch would agree with me on this. We just don't want to be people who, like these old ones, when, when God starts to build and he comes to you and he says, put my work at the center, that there's something in us that goes, but it was way better back then. Because God is always about the future. He's about the promise that is to come. But do you know what I mean? It's like, what I did in the past was amazing. The revivals of old were amazing, but no eye has seen and no ears heard what I have prepared for now, today, for those who know me and love me. Do you get that? I, I believe we've got to believe from grace to grace and glory to glory. I believe that what God did in the past was a foundation where today we stand on it and believe for even greater things. Do you know that? See, for the people in your lives today, the ones who don't know Jesus, the ones who are sick, the ones who are tired, the ones who are religious, everything in between. Don't look backwards. Don't go, oh, but it was better back then. Okay, because some of these men in the time, they look back and they went, if we could only be there. I, I do that with the 1980s, you know. I grew up in the 1980s and I'm so nostalgic about the 1980s. The flares, the everything, I loved it, all right? They was the best era. I watched the stuff on Facebook at times when it's like old TV programs, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just go, wouldn't it be some of these, look at the kids looking at me like, what's going on? <laughs> you have no idea, right? The 80s were the time to grow up, man, I'm telling you. And I look back with nostalgia and I, and I find myself going, wouldn't it be brilliant? All this craziness, we kind of knew what was going on back there. And the Lord says, listen, grace to grace and glory to glory. Some of you can't move forward because you've got one eye on the past. Honor your past, but be loyal to the future that God has called you to. Do you get that? Lo loyal, not to the past, loyal to the future where God is leading you. Because when you have that the wrong way around, what you do is you get stuck. And then when God is trying to show you and expand your heart for the promise that he has put in you and for the promise of the community that we're in, we can't because you go, well, it was really, really good back then. So we have to honor that, but be loyal to what God is calling us for. And so what happens is there's these mixed feelings. And I bet you for some of you, like for those men, there was some disappointment in them. 
There's some disappointment, even though God was building again and saying, go again. You were looking and going, I can't go again. Honestly, I can't go again, Lord. I've gone again and again and again, and I just feel like I just keep getting this knocked back every time. And the Lord says, put my work at the center. Keep your eyes on the promise of Jesus and his grace for you and go again. All right, go again because I am building. The whole context here was God was building. And remember, I've spent weeks before saying, even when it looks like it's going this way, remember, God is behind the scenes making it work. So you either have to choose in faith to believe that God is a way maker when you can't see it, or you'll look with your physical eyes and you will be terrified, right? He's always on the move. And so, what happens here is really interesting because whenever, whenever God starts to, to move and they start to put an altar, they start to put, let, let me talk to you, you put Jesus at the center, his promise, his word, the revelation of his grace at the center of your life, okay? What happens is that the way the enemy works against that, when opposition comes, you have to recognize it because what happens are that there's people who come along and they're Samaritans. Remember the good Samaritan? In the New Testament, this will maybe give you the context to why when Jesus gives a parable of the Good Samaritan, the people went, oh, terrible, absolutely awful. So let's read in Ezra chapter four, verses one and two. Um, before that, D Derek Kidner's a great guy on this, on this subject. And he says, from this point onwards, right to the end of Nehemiah, there is conflict. Nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged, right? And scarcely a tactic be unexplored by the opposition. I love that. From the moment where Jesus in our lives is put at the center, right? At that moment, nothing that is attempted for God will go unchallenged. Because in verses one and two, adversaries try to join the work of building the temple. Let's read. Now, when the adversaries, that means the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let's build with you. For we seek your God as you do. This is so interesting. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Let's build with you, they said. For we seek your God as you do. We have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, let me just give you the context here. Judea was not completely empty during the exile. In the two generations that stayed in between, you know, most of the Jewish population moved out, but there was a remnant who were descended from the lowest and the poorest people in the land who, st who stayed behind. You can read that in Jeremiah 39. And what happens is they start to combine um, with other people in these kind of largely desolate areas around the, around the country. And these people were not happy. So they, they were kind of left behind, and they're really not happy that, that Judah and Benjamin are coming back. And so they see them as enemies. Now, the people who, who drift into these areas are called Samaritans. And they, they brought into the, you know, after the fall of the Assyrians, basically in 733, what happens is they start to intermarry, they're left behind, and they start to, to fill the land. Now, the Samaritans continued in the land until the New Testament, right? I'm teaching you here because this is really important. The Samaritans have some historical, historical connection to the people of Israel, but the difference was their faith, now listen to me, was a combination of regulation, ritual of the law of Moses, and superstition. And that's why 
most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans probably more than they despised the Gentiles because they were religiously speaking, speaking half-breeds. That's how they were described. They were, had this mongrel half-breed faith. And that's really, really important to understand. In 2 Kings, actually 17.33, it tells us what the attitude of a Samaritan is. Let me read it. They says, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods with a small g, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Now, what does that mean? Whenever, whenever you encounter the grace of God, and we preach Jesus, Jesus alone in this church, right? What is his work? What did he do for you? What does it mean for you? All right? You're free. From that place, everything you do and every bit of effort then comes from that. We don't try to please God. We, we come from a place of being known by God and loved by God. Do you know that? Your work is not to get God to love you because you can't, you can't get any, any purchase from God by pleasing him with your, your hard work. He loved you first. Do you get that? That's the word that says this. He loved you first. And so what happens as we receive this revelation of God's grace in our lives? And we know that from that place, that's where fruitfulness comes. John 15, he's the vine, we're the branch. His life flowing in us produces good fruit in us. Our, everything we do to serve the Lord is a response from what he's done in us. You get that? Not the other way around. What does the enemy do? So your adversary, you see, is not somebody who comes along and says, boom, I'm gonna sort of Jackie Chan you. I'm gonna, you know, you can stand and, you know, face whatever way you want and shout and ball and get on. That, you know, we have to be wise to what the enemy does. And you see it here in the book of Ezra, when God's building, adversaries come and they don't look like what you think. Because what they are is normally, remember Jesus and his grace alone. Well, actually, why don't you partner with me? The Samaritan said. And it looks a little bit like what we think is right. Do you get that? They have some of the right rituals. They say we worship the same God. What they say is we worship the same God. We've got a little bit left and right, you know, but we've got some rituals and we've got some superstition. It's, they feared the Lord, so they had a system of words, but they served their own gods. Does that make sense? See, what will happen is this. What pulls away at the grace of God in your life? What pulls away at Jesus at the center of your life is not somebody coming and shouting and bawling at you. It's somebody who comes along and goes, why don't you do this on top of what he's done? Why don't you earn a little bit more of what God has done? Why don't you put this ritual into your life? Because if you put that ritual into your life, then God will love you more. Oh, you would not be able to build unless you do this. And it's not you do this because of the work. It's alongside the work. Do you get that? It's you and the work of Jesus together rather than the work of Jesus and everything flowing to you. And it's very subtle. And it feels right, you see, because the language is often the same. You know, it's like, God loves me, but I need to. And there's this ritual that I need to do. It's like, it's really good to read your Bible. You should read your Bible every day. I read my Bible every day, right? But I don't read my Bible every day because if I don't read my Bible every day, God won't love me. I read my Bible because I want to love God more. Do you get that? Like there was a couple of days this week, I just didn't get enough time because I was working from noon to night in, in, in Poland, eating pickles, right? Stinging the pickles all week, right? Do you think I could get up the next morning, right? 
I'll tell you what happened. Did I get up the next morning and go, like if I had a Samaritan in my ear, it would say, if you don't do that, then you can't expect the favor of God today. Insidious, right? Undermining, getting your attention off fully the work of Jesus and onto what you're doing to, to make that work of Jesus apply. It's not the way it works. It's very subtle. And what happens then is, is like, well, and it looks like, but this will build your life. It won't. It puts the attention on you and what you're doing before Jesus ever has a moment. And so there was sometimes this week, did I read my Bible? There was a couple of days, right? Individual days where I did read, but I kind of felt like I didn't. I just, I read. You ever have those days? I didn't get up the next morning and go, I'm doomed. Oh, today's going to be a nightmare. The pickles are going to be off. The Polish people are going to revolt. They're going to be angry, pitchfork me, and buck me out of the office that I'm working in, right? Too many pickles. Did it, I just got up with the same confident expectation to go, do you know what, Lord? Your work today is where I draw everything I am and everything I ever hope to be. You love me regardless. And when I did get to read the word like I really wanted to, it was because I wanted to, not because I had to. The motivation of your heart changes. But see, what happens is when the opposition comes, when the Samaritan comes, you're, you're going to find in your life, opposition in your life will not be about things. Sometimes there are difficult circumstances, I get that, which feel like they're smacking you in the jaw. But just be aware that most of the times it's not like that. It's, it's the voice that says, let me come alongside you, all right? You know that Jesus loves you, brilliant, but you really need to be doing this. If you don't do this, then Jesus isn't pleased. If you don't do this, then Jesus doesn't love you. If you don't do this, you'll never be anything. Remember, that's not the work of grace in your life. The work of grace is everything I do is because of the altar that I built, of Jesus and his finished work, not in order for him to love me. Does that make sense? Now, here's, here's what they do. It's, um, it, there's, th- there's three ways that the Samaritans resist the God, God's work, and I think you'll, un- you'll like them. It's under three different kings. I'm just gonna say this very quickly, okay? Because I wanted, I wanted to encourage you today. It's like when opposition comes to you, that you know, what you're gonna see here is that it was able to delay the work of God. Opposition will delay the work of God in your life, but it will never stop it but it only delays if you partner with it. Now have a look. The opposition comes, the resistance, the first thing is under King Zaris, okay? In 539, it says in verses four and five, then the people of the land, that's the Samaritans, tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, let me say that again. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I'm gonna to come to Darius at the end. So whenever people tried to build, the attack of the Samaritan first and foremost, right? Because, because even if there's something in you, that Zerubbabel says no, right? Very wisely, he just absolutely, let me go back on that actually. Zerubbabel actually says, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel, and he said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. You see, what happened here is that it's an important step of faith in your life. Just let me say this first, to refuse a partnership that might seem helpful to you. I, I imagine there's a few pragmatists 
here. I think there's probably a few pragmatists who probably said, look, you know, I need any help I can get, right? But they, they guarded themselves against that ungodly influence and went, it's not help in any way. You know, because when you feel weak, if, see, if your circumstances push against you, right, and there's often a temptation to take any help and ignore the dangers of unwise or ungodly partnerships. Do you get that? Let me tell you what that's like. An ungodly partnership is often a mindset in us. So when things get tough financially, you either have an altar where you go, Jesus in his grace has already provided all that I need, so I give generously, I sow, I, I believe that he is my source, right? Samaritan comes along, that spirit, that voice, and says, nah, what you need to do is you need to take this into your own hands, so don't give and look after yourself, right? Because that will build what you need in your life. You need to be safe financially, so don't, don't give, right? God loves you anyway. Don't worry about it. You just don't need to give, right? You look after that. You get that? And that might seem wise to us, but what's it doing? It's undermining the promise of God. Do you see how subtle it is? And we've got to be, that's why we have to have Jesus at the very center of our lives and his promise foremost. That's why we read. That's why we soak up the word of God. That's why we give our attention to the word of God so that when other voices come, we can go, no, that's not the voice of grace here. And it'll seem right, but thank goodness Zerubbabel had a, had a view and he went, I'm not gonna partner with that because it may seem right and I might feel weak right now. My circumstances, I may feel weak in them, but even in my weakness, I will not partner with an ungodly partnership, right? That will pull me away from what grace is trying to build in my life. I will not do it. And so what happens in, then is, is under Cyrus, the Samaritans have a go. They tried, they tried to discourage the people of Judah. As soon as they were not allowed to partner, it kind of just showed their evil intent. If they couldn't attack the work through a subversive partnership, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to discourage the workers. They're going to trouble the builders and they're going to lobby against them in the courts of the king. You know that literally it's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, the word to discourage is literally in a Hebrew idiom means to weaken their hands. Do you ever feel your hands get weak? When you're trying to build something, it's like your hands get weak, right? And what happens here is that the first attack is always about attacking them through discouragement. Some of you are discouraged this morning and you need to bring it back to the altar of grace and say, Lord, I am gonna put that on that altar and let your grace consume it for me because I feel discouraged. It's okay to feel discouraged, you know what? But it's... The, the, the really bad thing is that I allow it a place of influence. If you're discouraged, bring it back to the altar and say, Lord, I place my discouragement here because all it is is that Samaritan spirit in your ear saying, away from grace, add a little bit of you into it, okay? And the result is you will be discouraged. Why? Because it doesn't work. It, you get short-term results. You don't get long-term benefit from that. The second thing is in the second reign of the king is under King Azurius. They still keep going. In the beginning of this reign, you know what they did? They wrote accusations against the people. They wrote an accusation. And uh, what happens is they try to stop the work by influencing people of authority against the people of God. And what happens is they just keep going. It's just this constant stream of discouragement and accusation. I think for some, do you know what, we think accusation is people on Facebook, like Doris from Doncaster going, you're an idiot, right? Like, do you know what I mean? Oh, just accusing me. 
it's not, it's not really like that, right? Like the, the discouragement that we find and the accusation normally sits in our heads. You're not good enough. You're never gonna make it. You're, you're, you're not as good as somebody else. This is what people think of you. Do that never ending accusatory voice that keeps going on, right? That's one of the ways here that, that, that the enemy is trying to actually discourage the work of God building in your life. Just never ending accusation. That's why you have the altar at the center because the altar says no shame, no condemnation. And that accusing voice is silenced in grace. Because when you bring it to grace, grace says, I loved you first. And you're gonna see what's really interesting in the next one. In King under Artaxerxes, who's the last king, they actually write him a letter. And what, what's really interesting is that the letter was a skillful combination of truth and lies. So what they do is they write to the last king and they go, do you know these Jews? They're up to no good. You better watch them. You know, they've got a really sinful past. They're trying to undermine you, right? And what's interesting was, that, like these returned exiles are coming back because, uh, and, uh, and what's really interesting as we see in this last attack, the last attack is a, is, is a really cunning mixture of the truth and lies. Because you know what the truth is? We've all screwed up. Did you get that? So the accusation of the Samaritans is this. Do you know what? You better watch those people because here's their past. Here's their history. I'm not talking about, you know, going out, tearing up the town. I'm talking about the accusation that you face in your head sometimes when you've done stuff that you know you shouldn't have done, when you've been to places you know you shouldn't have been. And the enemy kind of goes, you know what? Like, okay, they might be, you know, they might be Christians. They might believe me. They might have, but you, you should really know what they're really like. Here's their past. Anyone? And you kind of go, well, that's the truth. Because the truth is, when I came to Jesus, it's, like that stuff didn't go away in the sense of it happened. Now, the sin was washed over, removed as far as the east is from the west and never held against us. But we all live with the memory of it, don't we? Anybody? And so what the enemy does is he comes and he brings it up and he writes to those in authority and he writes to people around. And it's this thing of going, just watch them. Because you know what? They're, they're not great. They've showed time and time again what their true colors are. And what happens is that he's trying to undermine them from building. And it's, it's a similar pattern today. Like, the, often the enemy attacks us with a mixture of truth and lies. Oh, so you're a Christian, are you? Brilliant. But sure, look what you've done. Look what you said. Look what you think. See, when nobody's looking, this is what you're really like. Right? And you kind of go, that, is that the truth? Well, do you do it? In one way, it's true. Is that who you are? Absolutely not. That's why grace at the center of your life, that altar goes, but that's not who you are. You're only who he says you are. And your sin does not define you. Your sin is not your identity. You are a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. You are loved by the Lord of Lords. And when he said, that moment you met Jesus, you're a brand new creation. He didn't say that he had just tarted you up from what you were before. He said he made you brand new. That's the good news of the gospel today. It's come to Christ and the past is done, never to come back. Your future is secure. That's the good news. That is the good news. 
And the enemy will continually come. And this is where people live today. They live in this halfway house, not just of accusation, but this halfway house of condemnation going, I know the truth is I'm a believer. I know the truth that Jesus loves me, but I can't break free from that. And the enemy just keeps going on, keeps going on, keeps chipping away going, ah, but you'll never be free. You'll never build anything. You'll never be used in anything significant. See what God's building in your life. It'll go to two bricks high and that's all you can expect because of who you are. That's what it's like under Artaxerxes, the Samaritan spirit. Kind of, and the, the interesting thing is that's what religion does. Okay, do you hear me? That's what religion does, replaces the altar of Jesus with the altar of your work. And it sounds right. It's, some of it is the same language. We love God. We want to serve God. My, and some of that is true. Our intention is right, but it's unless it's built on Jesus and his work, it's going nowhere. Amen. Do you get that? It's going nowhere. And I honestly believe, I honestly believe what, what happens here is that we just need to be wise to it. We just need to be wise to it. And it's not about you girding up and going, wah, 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 I'm gonna chop the life out of the devil. What was that? Jesus, help me, right? But you know what I mean? It's like not, I'm gonna go and fight the devil this week. No, you're not. You're gonna go with Jesus at the center. Because when you're, can you remember how he did this with the people of Israel? I was thinking about it this week. When I was praying for Israel this week, I was praying, Lord, you know what? If they turn their backs to their enemies and they face you, you face their enemies down. Do you remember that? How the Lord commanded them in the desert, don't face anywhere other than my presence. He actually commanded them to camp and he told them how to camp and their backs, it looks, it looks like a position of weakness, doesn't it? My back is to my enemy and so they can come right at me. But it was the biggest position of strength because to the Lord's reckoning, when you are facing him, he is looking over your shoulder to face your enemies down, folks. That's how we're supposed to live, not going out, trying to maneuver around the devil. Forget it, you're not smart enough, clever enough, and you were never called for it anyway. The battle is not yours, it was his and it's won for you. Amen. Put him at the center. Put him at the center. So when the discouragement comes, the accusation comes, the mixture of truth and lies come, when you're facing it yourself, it will overwhelm you and you will disqualify yourself from the call of God. But Jesus says this morning, that is not who you are. You are my beloved. I am so proud of you. I love you. And when I look at you, I see the finished work of Jesus in you. I call you righteous. Somebody give me an amen this morning. And your past is not your future because in that moment where the crappy altar is destroyed and the altar or the cross of Jesus is put on its foundation in your life, then all things are possible, the Lord says. That's what happens when opposition comes. And so if I can just, I'll flip, I need to finish, Right? Has this been okay? Have you been encouraged? Yeah, okay. What happens is um, the work actually stops in Ezra 17 through 23. They, they kind of go right, time out almost, okay. And then in the days of Darius, right? And uh, what happens is they start to build again. The work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceases and until the second year of Darius, who's the king of Persia, it starts to build again. Can I just say this? And this is my last point. Work, the work of God never stops in your life. Do you get that? He's never stopped. He, he will never be finished with you. He never, he never goes like, I've had enough. See this opposition that comes, right? This is the, this is the difference, right? Between people and, and the Lord. Like people get fed up with you and they'll wash their hands of you. 
People will roll their eyes sometimes when they see you coming. People will go, see your man's past. They'll keep you locked in yesterday and never let you live free for tomorrow. Do you get that? And it might feel in those moments, God, your work has stopped. It never stops. There might be times where if you let that be your attention, it'll slow, right? Because the subtle transfer is away from Jesus to the work on your shoulders. You ain't gonna do it, it's gonna slow. But what we see here is that, that even though everything was chucked against the people of God, all the lies, the authorities coming against them, adversaries attacking them, like all these tactics, they could never succeed against God and his people ever. The only small victory they had was to delay the work, but they couldn't stop it because the temple was built. And I just tell you this, if accusation has come to you, if lies have come to you, if discouragement has come to you, if your past has come to you, and you have felt like, oh God, that has stopped your way. It's never stopped anything that God's building. Might have slowed it down. Get your eyes off it and get your eyes back on the altar. Because all that's happened is delay is not final. And I believe there's an acceleration of the work of God in your life, in your ministries, in your homes, in your businesses. In these weeks and months to come into 2024, as we take our eyes off of the circumstances and put them onto the finished work of Christ. And from that place, allowing his grace to flow, his grace to bring the fruit, his grace to bring the acceleration, the funding, the finance, the positioning, because there is not one work of the enemy that will ever stand against the work of grace in your life. Amen? But there will be opposition. So stop fighting it. Stop looking like this. Just get your eyes back onto the Lord. Tomorrow morning, right? How are you gonna start? Get your eyes onto Jesus. What's his promise? Take one promise tomorrow. Declare it over your life, over your kids, over your homes, over your families, and then go do what you do, believing that you're blessed. And watch him move for you. Watch him build for you. Watch him position you. Watch him work miracles for you. Watch him elevate you and promote you. Why? Because that is what he does. Amen? Are you encouraged? Brilliant. Stand to your feet. And let's... Um, we're gonna, the worship guys are gonna come up here. <clears throat> just close your eyes for one moment. As I just wanna pray for you all. Holy Spirit, we just thank you in this place today that you are building, Lord. Father, we pray over every life in this place. Father, I thank you that today, as we stand here together as your church, Father, we believe that your grace is enough, Lord. Father, we thank you that you can give me an amen, church, all right? Your grace is enough, Lord. Father, we put our eyes and our attention, Lord, we put you at the very center, put that altar back on its bases, Father, your work perfect and complete in our lives, Lord. And Jesus, we give our attention to you, our focus to you. Lord, not on the world around us and the opposition that comes, Lord, because that battle is not ours, that battle is yours, Lord. 
Our battle is for righteousness. The use of our faith is for righteousness. To believe that you are who you are and you have done in us what you said you would do. And from that place, Lord, life flows. And so Father, I pray over everyone today who has been battling for discouragement. Lord, we rebuke that, of course, but we just speak Jesus over them. We speak Jesus over every heart, that your mind and your heart would be expanded today with who Jesus is and how much he loves you. Every good promise that he has spoken over you, the hope and the future that he has called you for, I speak it over you in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord, as we, as the people of God, just allow you to wash over us, Jesus, that right now, can I just say, every situation that's bothering you, he knows about it and he cares for you. He knows every detail. And he just says, keep your eyes fixed on me. I will give you the wisdom. I will give you the breakthrough. I will give you the connections and the network. I will give you everything that you need because I'm already working in that situation. You're gonna stand in a place of glory and blessing and go, holy smokes, look what he did. I could never have worked this out. I could never have seen this happen. I could never have been smart enough to, to calculate this, but Jesus is true to his word in my life and he has brought me through, amen. I'm might have experienced delay, but it hasn't stopped him from working in me, in my family, in my ministry. And so, gee, I pray that over you in Jesus' precious name. That discouragement would leave and would be replaced today by a vision of Jesus. His love, his goodness, his promise over you, over your husbands, your wives, your partners, over your children over your homes and over your ministries. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And all those people said, Amen.